Welcome to Ellas, a bi-weekly podcast made by Latinas for Latinas. We talk with talented, inspiring, and empowering women that are living their dreams and making a path for the next generation. I'm Brenda Hernandez. And I am Brenda DeShazer. And this is Ellas. Hi, I'm Brenda Hernandez, and we're here on the 10th episode on Ellas. We have a very special guest, scholar and storyteller, Annalisa Ruiz. Uh, my name is Annalisa. I use she, her, hers pronouns. I recently graduated from Barnard College, which is the historically women's college of Columbia University in the city of New York, which is their official like slogan, I guess. Um, and what do I identify as? Well, <laughs> in <laughs> what? Um, my first question is in what regard? Like uh, in terms of cultural identity. Great. And then we can go towards professional. Yes. Okay, great. Um, So my cultural identity, I identify as Mexican. I identify as Mexican-American. And I call myself a Chicanita Mm -hmm. or a little Chicana. Mm -hmm. I love that. Um, Because I'm so young and youthful. So, (laughs) yes, so those are my cultural identities. Awesome. Um, Yeah. And here at Ellas, we love... Before we talk about professional careers, mm-hmm. we love to start in the beginning and, mm-hmm. you know, the story of where you grew up and how you came across a decision that you decided to study and, um, you know, and focus your thesis. So yeah. can you share a little bit of your story and how was your childhood like? Sure. So I grew up in East Los Angeles, the realist 323. Um, <laughs> and I um, grew up in the house that my mom also grew up in, and my grandma still lives there. Mm-hmm. So it's a really like three generations. Yeah, exactly. So it just feels very like, like obviously your home is your home base, but I just feel very connected to like mm-hmm. my community. And um, yeah, my community really informs the work that I do. Mm-hmm. So I, growing up, was very aware of what it meant to live in East Los Angeles and what I saw, which was a lot of poverty, which was a lot of police presence, which was um, limited access to education and resources and things that I think a lot of people need. And I decided to go to school in New York City, which led me Mm -hmm. to Barnard. And there I was surrounded by the opposite, right? Um, Mm -hmm. I was surrounded by... A lot of privilege that came across in wealth, that was racial privilege, that was definitely in education because I came in, you know, having gone to a public school where um, I had to show my ID to a police officer every day to get in and rolling up to like literally ivy covered buildings Mm -hmm. where you could just walk freely in and out. Um, And who like where my peers were now people that had been educated by folks that had had a PhD already like in high Mm -hmm. school they had um, PhD teachers Um, so yeah I just had this very strange like 180 turn in my life (laughs) Um, like and also was on the legitimate opposite side of the country so like literally everything had flipped and I think what led me toward research um, or academia is I think one that awareness um, and having a story to tell um, and knowing the story of my community. Mm-hmm. So that is sort of what I began to base my identity and sense of self in at Barnard, which led me to studying women and gangs and subculture communities in LA. Um, yeah. And girls, for you listening, Annalisa's thesis is so amazing. It's like 89 pages. Yeah, and <laughs> it really comes full circle for where she grew up in, mm-hmm. and it's called. Can we say the title? Of yes, pieces? please. It's "Girl Gangs Ichingonas: Women, Art, and Homework in Los Angeles." Yes, and it's just the history of Los Angeles mm-hmm. and the, the community of the Chicano community of the mm-hmm. Mexican American community, mm-hmm. and. You wrote it so beautifully. You investigated so thoroughly and interviewed people. Mm-hmm. And at the end, when I finished it, my whole mindset towards, um, I won't spoil it because we'll go later <laughs> on. But towards, In next week's episode. Yeah, no, you know, towards uh, the Cholas, yeah. it totally flipped. Yeah. And 
I don't know if that was your goal. Yes. But yes. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for, for writing it. Seriously. Yeah. So can you, you were in Bernard and you had that complete mm-hmm. switch. Yeah. How was that like? Because you obviously didn't have the investment in high school professors towards you, you know, like maybe motivating mm-hmm. you and your peers. Yeah. And how was that going into Bernard and like having sort of that interest from your professors to motivate you to continue? Yeah, that's a very uh, pointed observation because um, something that I noticed very early on, um, which I think like a lot of new people in like higher education think like just fall back on the experiences that they had in high school like initially like oh would you get like in your AP score and really like you know like you know, just like little things like that that don't really add up to anything but it's like what you have and like it that can affirm you right um and so I remember having a conversation with someone and they were like yeah like didn't your professors tell you like you're supposed to go to office or not your professors didn't your high school teachers tell you you were supposed to go to office hours you were supposed to get like this sort of internship you're supposed to do that and I remember looking at her and saying no and I was <laughs> and I said my high school teachers were like we're just going to get you to the door like our goal mm-hmm. like you know what I mean like we don't even have time to prepare you for what call like I didn't have a single teacher in high school say like you know you guys are from a marginalized community and going into higher education might be hard for you we didn't have a conversation at all the conversation was you are from a marginalized community you need to go to college if you are gonna live Mm -hmm. period so it was very surprising to me when at first like and not necessarily early on in my undergraduate career but like initially when professors were like you have something to say and you like Mm -hmm. should speak like I read your writing and you should really speak up in class and those sort of things in my head were very nice but like that part of my soul is like not invested yet you know (laughs) I was like I don't know I'm scared I'm shy which is not really true to who I am um but I think for me what made it switch was when I was like having a conversation with a friend that I also had class in, like we lived together and we were coming back from a class um, and we we had been talking about like representation, just like general representation mm-hmm. in theater because we were taking a class called Art, Sex and American Culture. And so we were studying this play and we were like, have you noticed that like a lot of the things we read are about white people and things like that? Have you noticed that like a lot of the kids are like into diversity, but when it like <laughs> comes into, like when it comes to like actually incorporating like works from people of color from women of color from queer folks like from whatever you know marginalized group like that's Mm -hmm. not really happening um that's when it was sort of just like oh that is where we step in right like that's when you have to start like writing and doing your own thing which some people don't always like right like as the person who holds like the marginalized oppressed or underrepresented like identity in the room you don't always want to have to be the educator Mm -hmm. um which I get and that's totally your choice and I respect that um but for me like I saw myself as someone who was in a place of more privilege than that right like I was definitely not well represented in my classes but I also wasn't like struggling in certain ways you know what I mean like I had like the leverage in some ways to take on this work and it was work that I knew would inspire and drive me and uh, yeah like what you said like ultimately like I wanted to tell a different story about a community I felt like I had been told was bad my entire life Mm -hmm. how did you so going back to like your high school and transitioning to a university Mm -hmm. how did you figure that shit out like <laughs> like you didn't no, <laughs> like we're all just like struggle because it sounds like well like yeah from the high school that you went mm-hmm. to there's not a lot of funding that's going into the yeah, high school yeah, and yeah. the teachers are grossly underpaid yeah for exactly. what they have to teach mm-hmm. and like not really motivated so then the students and therefore like aren't motivated either mm-hmm. so it doesn't seem like you had a lot of help like going to like a ivy league especially so yeah. how did you even like come across like oh yeah i am gonna go to an Ivy League for sure or like how am I even going to get into this without anybody else's help I'm I mean yes I think like (laughs) yes to a certain degree like I think that my high school environment I think my teachers were like 
we want to send our kids to college. And for them, that meant like a Cal State and a UC, which is great. Like get a degree. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think like, honestly, I wouldn't be anywhere if it weren't for my mom, who was like, you are going to do something more. You're going to do something different. And um, she like shuttled me around to all of those like touring open houses and that's where I sort of like learned more about different schools like across the country um but yeah like she my both my parents have um like have some college degrees so my dad has an AA and my mom has a BA and a master's and so they they both are formally educated but they both went to school locally and so I was going to be the first one to like move out of state to go to school and again like you said like to go to Columbia and Barnard it's like not even to go to a different state school is like a whole other world and so navigating that was hard like there's just no (laughs) other way to say it like yeah it was really hard and they're like imposter syndrome is really real and I think the only thing that saved me was like the community of other women of color that Mm -hmm. I built while I was there um because those were people that I could relate to those were people that felt my struggle um and those are the people that also saw my work, right? Like, I think that's the other thing that was motivating was that I was a part of a program called Mel May's Undergraduate um, Fellowship. And so that is like a program designed for students of color that are interested in getting a PhD. And it was run by three black women. And I was in a cohort of, I think like my first year, our cohort yeah, all two years I was in the program, our cohort was all women of color. Um, most of us, like, lower income, a few of us first gen. And so it was, like, I was with people that understood what it was like to navigate predominantly white spaces, to navigate um, places of wealth, and to still thrive. So I think having those other models and those support systems, even if they were my peer, like, they were still my mentors in, in ways, you know? Yeah. That's amazing because... <clears throat> having those these women and other students and that were mentoring you mm-hmm. you know you had that support while you were in yeah Bernard. exactly but then, can you tell us a little bit more while you were studying mm-hmm. were those well reading you know yeah your pre your answers to previous to the recording you mentioned that there was some time that you just in class started crying yeah mm-hmm. so I feel like many students mm-hmm. who are in college mm-hmm. and may not have that support system yeah, and are feeling the same way you felt mm-hmm. while we were the professors. Can you share that experience and how you were able to overcome it in terms of yes. like continuing your thesis? <laughs> yeah. Um, so what had happened was that I was in my thesis seminar and I... Um, I was in the Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies Department at Barnard, which is a pretty small department. And so our senior cohort, second semester, which was like the honors or the like continuation of the thesis, was six people. Um, so out of the six, I was the only person of color. And I was the only person writing about like anything that had to do with race. And um, my department, for the most part, is white. Um, I think we have, well, we have like, a few that are like joint appointments um, that are folks of color, um, but for the most part, it's white. And in class, we had just turned in like a draft and we had had spring break. And then it was like, okay, folks, like now that you've had some time away from the writing, like, how do you feel? And I started crying and I said, I reread what I wrote and I hate it. And it's not what I wanted to write. And I was like, (laughs) yeah. Um, And I was like at a table, like a very small round table. Like I'm looking everyone in the face and I'm crying. And I just said like, this is not the story I wanted to tell. I wanted to write for my community. And instead I wrote for you guys. And I was like, you all didn't grow up where I grew up. You don't know what the heck I'm talking about. So I have to first teach you a whole history. I was like, I literally start at, when Mexico was colonized <laughs> and I have to catch you up until the present because you don't know. And I was yeah. like, if I, and I said to this, like I looked at my professor square in the face and I said, if I were writing this at UCLA, the professor would actually hand me my paper back and say, I wrote this book already. Like you, like there, you don't yeah. need to write this. Mm-hmm. And I was like, and I feel like I don't even get to tell the story I want to tell because I am busy like teaching you because I know that at the end of the day, you guys are reading my paper and you guys are like giving me the grade. Um, which was hard um, because it doesn't like right like and I 
don't super mind crying in front of other people. But I did mind, like, there is a certain thing that happens when you call attention to race in a room full of white people. And it's that white people feel uncomfortable with yeah. it, which is the point. Yeah. <laughs> and... um. But what also happens is then, like, you can't, like, for me at least, I can't help but feel uncomfortable in that. Like, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Because, yeah. again, like, you, it's not my job to make you feel comfortable, obviously. Um, and yet there is too much, like, pressure in the room that I can't help but feel it, too. Yes. So. Um, the uncomfortability yeah, makes you uncomfortable. Yes. <laughs> and it's just, like, I'm trying to prioritize me, and, <laughs> and I can't. And so, um like you ask how you get through it. I mean, like I, I just said, like this sucks, and, <laughs> and that's like my way of just um, dealing with that is just saying it out loud, um, which I think is like, like going back to white comfort, like is the exact opposite of what people expect, right? Like, um, if I notice someone's uncomfortable with, well, like, but not you, my white friend, like you're different. Like I'm just gonna say, like, no, you're not, <laughs> and like you know better. But I'm sorry, this still sucks for me. And um, I think that I told them, like, the way I was going to move forward with it in my writing was I said, like, I'm going to stop writing you a history and I'm going to just start writing what I want to write. Mm-hmm. And nice. if you get it, you get it. And if you don't, I'm sorry. But right, it will be your job like, to look up that history. Yeah, I was but... like, but it will be well written. And so yes. <laughs> I was like, it will be enjoyable probably yeah. um, <laughs> for you. I, I don't know. And so, yeah, I think the only way to get through it is for you to do... It's to refuse, which is what I write about. Um, yeah. It's to refuse compromise. Um, yeah. And I think, like, you stayed true to yourself and true to form because in your writing, it shows, like, the representation that you wanted to depict. Mm-hmm. You didn't depict, like, cholas and chingonas with, like, gangs and violence mm-hmm. or anything. No. It's literally, like, the artistic yes. <clears throat> expression yeah. that you were mm-hmm. um, trying to convey. And you did that beautifully. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Um, <laughs> and, like, the difference between you had, like, homework and the house. Yes, so it's homemaking and homework, yeah. Yes, Mm -hmm. and, like, just taking out all of the things that we put stereotypes into East LA Mm -hmm. and into Mm -hmm. um, cholas and chingonas and Mm -hmm. um, pachucas, um, it, like, really conveyed, like, a different message of, like, these are people, like, just like everybody else. Yeah. And I think that I commend you. I don't think I know I commend you on this work because I know that whole, like, well, like, let me give you a generalized term of what, like Mexican Americans, Americans yeah. East LA are, mm-hmm. but like no, like let me give you like the truth. What I want to write about, mm-hmm. what like how I see them, how everybody else should see them, rather than what Hollywood puts them out. Yeah, to be. exactly. So I think you did a beautiful job. Yeah, <laughs> I appreciate that. Thank you. And knowing more that you had the support system, you mm-hmm. know Bernard, it's and then reading your thesis, mm-hmm. which is these groups of girls and like girl gangs, you know yeah, the yeah, support yeah. system. Mm-hmm. It interlaced beautifully. I think oh, did, was that like was that support that you had? To, like, did it did it help you while you were writing your thesis, or were there moments? Can you share like moments where like, hey, you have you have to continue like doing your story and like telling the stories of these women? Are you asking like, did the like groups of women supporting me like influence the way I wrote about groups of women in the in the work? Not influenced you in the way, but. Mm-hmm. Um, just encouraged you to go on and just have that support system of like hey if you need a shoulder to lean on i'm here for you 100 percent, yeah yeah um uh yes i think a lot of my friends well that that's also the funny part of it right it's like research is very solitary work Mm -hmm. um because it's you and your brain and i mean it's the people that you include right like the people that you interview or the artwork that you or for me at least the artwork that i deal with um But I'm the only writer. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm the only one thinking about it. And so I can tell people about it. But it's not like they're like, cool. They don't really, like, get to be a part of it. Um, And so for my friends, I think, like, when I was writing it, especially, like, toward the end when I just wanted, like, there was the part of me that wanted to keep writing because I knew I wasn't done. But there was the other part of me that is a person and got tired. And so I was like, right? Not a machine. Yeah, exactly. And so I was like, I can't write for days. Um, But there, like, I remember my friend Hattie was like, how can we read it if you don't write it? Like, you know what I mean? Like, you need to write it so that way we can know what you've been doing for the past two years. Like, this has been your whole life yeah. that I've known you. Like, you need to keep doing this because mm-hmm. that's how it goes. Um, 
So absolutely, like the real women in my life, like influenced the way, like influenced how I thought about the work, influenced the work itself. Um, and it's interesting, like, um, it wasn't the question that you asked, but like, it is true, like there, there is a sort of like, almost like a little girl gang of like academics, right? That mm -hmm. we formed that was like, we're the like rebels that are rewriting <laughs> history, um, right? Like you yeah. can think of it like that for sure. So yeah, I don't think like this work was mine, but it definitely belonged to the people that helped me along the way, whether they were my professors, the people I interviewed, um, the communities that like I talked about that, you know, like, and that's a vague term, right? It's like for every person who's ever held this identity it's for them yeah. yeah and for everybody that is listening right now like the 80 pages that we keep on referring to it's so incredible to us because the requirement was so much less than 80 yeah. pages <laughs> <laughs> and to hear her say like she still had a whole other section to go yeah i did that yeah. her professors told her like you need to stop writing like, Please stop. <laughs> yeah they were like Please. we have to grade this yeah so stop. like we need our time to yeah. read it, go through it and grade it um <laughs> which yeah. i thought was so funny but uh, as I was reading, I love the definition that you give of like homemaker versus mm -hmm. like homework. homework. Yeah. And when you first read the title, you think, well, I thought that it was like school, like yes. homework. What are like grown <laughs> people doing homework for? But can you give us the definition and the contrast of those two words? Yes. Um, so homemaking, as I define it, is the traditional labor that goes into maintaining the home, right? So that's like cooking, emotional labor, caretaking. Um, like it's important work, right? Because mm -hmm. you yeah. cannot live without it yeah um but it's historically very gendered right like historically that's women's work um and for me at least like what I noticed about homework or homemaking is that it's very layered mm -hmm. um with memory right um mm -hmm. so one example is like and and for some people this might be a stereotype but like cleaning on Saturday Right. Like when your mom puts on or like someone puts on like really loud music and oh, it's yeah. just like cleaning <laughs> and like. But if you think about it, like that's the music that just informs your whole childhood. Right. Mm -hmm. Like for for me, it was Juan Gabriel. That's what my mom used to always listen to. And so like, <laughs> yes, and still does. Yes. Right. And so like that is the soundtrack to like cleaning and that's the soundtrack to mm -hmm. like building a home. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, But what happens to me at least, is that when women are put in those spaces and when they're left like to their own devices, what really happens is like exchange. What happens is storytelling. What happens is teaching. Um, so a good example that I like to give is the kitchen table, right? Like, um, for example, like often at parties, like women are usually in the home, like cooking, preparing the meal and men are outside drinking and um, you know, finishing the tequila bottle until they cry at the end because um, <laughs> that's usually what happens. And so... <laughs> Like, what I think happens and what I know to have happened in those, like, interior moments is the learning, right? It's when you hear stories from your parents or your sisters about, like, the life they've lived. Mm -hmm. It's when you're learning, like, how to, like, grow as a person, right? Mm -hmm. And that, to me, is homework, which I define as the intergenerational learning, healing, and practices of refusal. Um, so what that means is... Homework is the things that go on inside the home that are about teaching, that are about learning and healing across generations, and are about living an authentic life, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I think so often the women in our lives, especially, like, the ones older than us, will be like, I mean, how, like, you know, you do this and that. Don't do that. Like, when I was young, blah, blah, blah. And that's that renegotiation, right? That's like, when I was young, this is the way the world was, mm -hmm. and I want more for you. And this is how I think you should live your life. Um, sometimes that doesn't always feel good. <laughs> when you, Right? Like, yeah. as a young person, that doesn't always feel good to hear, like, older people tell you this is how you should live your life. Yeah. Um, but it's done with love. And it's usually, like, and it's done in those quiet moments in your house, right? Like, mm -hmm. it's done, like, everyone's outside living their life, but you guys are home doing something. And, and that's when you can tell that story. Mm -hmm. um, and I also, like, work really hard to think of, like, your home can be anywhere and it can happen any place. So like in the in the thesis, I talk about how like the neighborhood is also your home, mm -hmm. right? Because maybe you're like the place that you live is not a safe place for you. Um, so if you are like, like living or you feel most comfortable, if your home is like maybe on a street corner, if your home is like 
I don't know, like a restaurant that you go to, like wherever it is that you are learning and you feel that love and support, that is where that homework for me is taking place. Yeah. And you mentioned in Pachucas and Cholas, mm-hmm. they kind of rewrite that homework that one um, encounters in the home. Yes. Mm-hmm. And instead of being in the home yes. and continuing maybe the traditions or mm-hmm. the machista mm-hmm. traditions yes, exactly. in the household, mm-hmm. they're, they're rewriting it yes. with their fashion, mm-hmm. their makeup, and, yes, the, and their art. Yeah, and exactly. Can you go a bit further with that? Because yes. I had no idea. <laughs> I knew about pachucos. Yeah. And I knew about, you know, when once California was part of the U.S., mm-hmm. Mexicans that stayed weren't didn't have the citizenship, but yes. didn't know that they were deported back to Mexico. Yes, which is a lot. A lot of people don't know yes. that. Yes, and mm-hmm. but that's for later. Let's go into you know them rewriting mm-hmm. their homework with yeah. through fashion and mm-hmm. um, beauty. Yes, so um, bachucos and bachucas start to emerge in the U.S. Uh, in the late '30s, beginning of the '40s, essentially like out of the Great Depression. Mm-hmm. Um, so. As uh, you may know, during the Great Depression, there was rations on everything, um, and especially into the 40s when they're trying to support the war effort, uh, there was rations on fabric. So that could limit the clothes that you had. And for, like, young immigrant youth, or pachucos and pachucas, the war was actually an important opportunity to, one, show patriotism either by serving, and for women it was, you know, being able to work. Mm -hmm. And so when you work you typically make money and that (laughs) allows you to um, afford different luxuries in life right and so for these women they were able to afford these like really fine clothes Mm -hmm. that for them like having grown up essentially in poverty right like you're probably like 17 when you're going to work at that time like you grew up during the depression you're like absolutely not I'm making my own money now I'm gonna go out and buy myself nice clothes and so they used to wear these really beautiful opulent suits and so it used to be um, a skirt that was maybe like a few inches above the knee but very scandalous at the time and a long fingertip coat and the billowing pants and so for women at least the main issue with their clothing was it was like too much and too little at the same time, right? Mm-hmm. Like it was too much fabric. Like we're supposed to be rationing. Like how dare you? You're so unpatriotic. And if you're wearing the skirt, well, now there's not enough fabric. <laughs> I, can, I can see it. Your whole butt. Um, and the best part about this, like, okay, negotiation of like clothing and fabric was that they wore it in public. Mm-hmm. And like you said, that's how you bring it out of the home, right? Right. Like that's how you do this homework outside. Because you are a new generation that's coming in and taking up space. Literally, like, the right to public space, like, it is illegal to loiter Mm -hmm. still. And so, like, so to just hang out and be in clothing that is opulent, that is very clearly racialized, that demonstrates, like, a certain affiliation to class is a really big thing. And you think about it, it's so simple. Like, you're just, like, like, yeah, I'm standing outside (laughs) with my clothes on. And you're just hanging. And um, it's very fascinating that that is, like, like literally women got arrested and women would be arrested and there's I didn't I don't think I included it in the thesis but there's this really beautiful or not beautiful but there's a very important archival image that's housed at the Los Angeles Library of Pachuca women in a police lineup and in the caption it says like arrested for um I think it was like arrested for perceived um what, what was the word they used essentially they were arrested because the police were like they might be overly sexual in oh. public And so, exactly. And so, um, yeah, like the the way you just take space like that says something about the way you think about your body. This is something, again, about class and race. But for them specifically, it was also about sex. Like Mm -hmm. they were women who were liberated in a sense, who were working, who were independent um, and owned that. And that's the most dangerous thing a woman can be, right, sometimes, um, is to truly own herself. And so that's how, yeah, Pachuca's got a bad rap. <laughs> <That's> so crazy. <laughs> it's so crazy, but like reading your thesis and, you know, Ellas is about pay, uh, having uh, these amazing women that are paving mm-hmm. the path for their our next generation. Mm-hmm. And in a way, Pachuca's and Cholas paved the way for us Latinas exactly. to wear what we want, mm-hmm. walk on the street with our friends. Mm-hmm. And you think about it, it's like, 
wow what they went through mm-hmm. and the suffer um you know the being policed mm-hmm. and being arrested and being judged and not even being invested in towards education yeah all they did all they went through you know it's mm-hmm. we're here now thanks yeah. to them yeah yeah exactly and it's just like super fucking mind blowing yeah and want to go we want to go to cholas how their makeup how they're mm-hmm. rearranging homework in yes. their own way through yes. fashion and makeup um yes yeah. so in the thesis there's a table breakdown that's not mine that um was written by um norma mendoza denton who's a professor of linguistic anthropology at ucla and <laughs> um she did a study on cholas i think in northern california and so what it breaks down is sort of like essentially the aesthetic um sort of shows you where it is you fall either on the north or south of mexico and thus sort of like demonstrates a kind of allegiance to whatever like barrio or gang also reps those colors right mm-hmm. um so I personally, because I use this in my presentation, um, <laughs> like I, um, my mom is from Sonora and my dad's from Zacatecas, but like I, I grew up mostly around my mom's family. So in theory, I would be identifying as Norteña. So my like colors would be like the bright red. So I would wear a bright red lip um, and a liquid and solid eyeliner. So that's like the top with the sharp wing and then the like solid along the bottom. I would probably be listening to all these music while I cruise in my car, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and those are the certain, there are just like certain ways that you can code yourself or like cholas can code themselves to demonstrate where they belong. And that I think like that's like kind of something that we know about gangs like in theory, like that's like common knowledge to some folks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you live in a world where there are gangs. Um, but what's really incredible about doing this as women and what I found across in my interviews was that being able to see someone who in theory was like representing a certain region of Mexico meant being like you could connect with that like I'm also from that place or my like cousin also wears those colors right and so you are able to find people that are like you Mm -hmm. and that's like of course like as a human being like finding that sense of belonging is so crucial and important And that's, again, where that homework comes in, because once you find those, once you find your community, they're the ones that educate you, right? They're the ones that pull you further, and they're the ones that teach you what it is about being a woman. And that, like, that story is so common across a lot of the people that I interviewed was, you know, like, I grew up watching, like, my cousin, or I grew up watching my sister put on their makeup and get dressed to go out, and I couldn't wait for that to be me. And I couldn't wait to, like, also go out with them. And once I did, like this is what, like, this whole world opened up for me, and that is, like, and you think about it, and that happens with makeup, like, that happens, and not even expensive makeup, that happens with, like, 99 cent, like, eyeliner, and, like, Aquanet, yeah, Yeah, exactly, like, incredible, you, like, these are the sort of, like, very detailed practices that we just take for granted, right, but for an outsider, it means nothing, Right. Like, oh, that's just women putting on their makeup. But it's very important. It's a sacred practice. And it means so much for like folks to pass on that practice and to raise up that next generation. And it is so deeply rooted in love and care. And when you know the history of the way like Mexican and Latinx folks were treated in Los Angeles, you can, that's a history that is carried with you. Mm-hmm. But you guys also wear makeup like that. Like, they probably learned how to do that from their mothers. Like, that, like, think you, like, don't get enough credit for the practices that you have in these communities, maybe. Um, In part because they're disregarded as women's work, in part because they're disregarded as, like, lower class, like, accoutrement. But, like, that is the biggest mistake because, like, in those tiny details is where, like, the greatest history lies. Yeah. I think I love when, um, in your thesis, how you were talking about in, like, the one pencil that is able to do your eyeliner, mm-hmm. your lip liner, also your eyebrows. Mm-hmm. Like, it's showing the other generation to be resourceful. Like, you are exactly. a strong woman. Like, you can, you have so much at your hands right now yeah. that you do so much with one thing. Um, 
and then in those times of doing makeup you're also like learning lessons you talk about life and you yes. like pass on stories and you pass on advice of like those are the times you say mm-hmm. like oh don't do that or yeah. like oh yeah you should do that or give each other encouragement mm-hmm. and it's just like this sense of community that is passed down and it is like the yeah something that you pass down to the next generation mm-hmm. which i think is so beautiful yeah <laughs> yeah and it's and it's um like you know there's there's a part of me that like is logical right which is like if you are poor <laughs> and all you right um which some of us are um and all you have is money for your one pencil you are going to be putting that thing to use right yeah. like you yeah. logically you are, are you're no 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 ma'am <laughs> like you are gonna use it for everything you can mm-hmm. and i had this conversation once with um a professor and i was like and isn't that like beautiful that you can use this tool of course to adorn yourself but like why can't drawing like a portrait be the same as drawing on your eyebrows Mm -hmm. right like it's the same stroke of hand Mm -hmm. and that's for me at least because I I talk about style and like the body um but I talk about the way that like aesthetic translates to visual art like it just seems so seamless right Mm -hmm. like you've already been drawing on yourself you've already been stylizing yourself and making yourself a work of art it is only logical that you would then move to a different medium. Mm. And when you moved into that different medium Mm -hmm. and then Chicana artists are Mm -hmm. taking the, you know, their art into their own hands and flipping the way women are seen in art, specifically cholas. Mm -hmm. And can you explain that? I love that chapter when, you know, our gaze is seen up gallery yeah mm-hmm. and you see how the woman is taking her own pleasure with herself yes and just not having us visualize it with a man or mm-hmm. so and also going back to how you began the thesis you know with yeah the, with the um pachuca chola and then the mirror when you're in the middle right yeah so can you explain well go further in that like okay now i've made a work of art in my body mm-hmm now let's take it to the mm-hmm. other medium. Yes. Um, so, hold on. I just want to make sure. Like for the art piece that you're talking about, are you talking about like the the hand drawn like where like her breasts are out and yeah. she looks like she's having orgasm? Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah. So there. Oh, I think the artist for that is Babyface, mm-hmm. and that's like a page out of um, a magazine called Originals Magazine. Um, I don't know if, I'm pretty sure they're a magazine. I don't know if they identify as a zine, but they're a magazine. And this was from their like women's issue. Mm-hmm. And so it was all female artists that were featured. And so in this um, drawing is a woman who um, is drawn in like a typical like Chicano style, like really sort of like, um, what's the word, teased hair, like exaggerated sexual features. Like her breasts are incredibly large and like, jutting out of her body <laughs> um like at a full 90 degree angle um oh, she has a face what <laughs> yeah and she has a face but what's interesting about her face um which is not always like the case in in sort of like artwork that's drawn by men is that one we're looking like up at her um which like the perspective of it is really important because in uh, another conversation i had with an artist that i interviewed for the project valerie j bauer she was saying to me like the way you shoot people, the way you draw people is the way you see them. If you're looking down on them, like you look down on them. And the way if you're looking up, like, you know, you, you're trying to treat them differently. Um, so in this image, we're looking up at her. So we're not actually getting the best like the best angle exactly for her cleavage is probably looking down or like level. Mm-hmm. But we're looking up. So we're getting a lot of like under boop, which if you're into good, great. <laughs> cool. Awesome. Um, <laughs> but it's like it's actually the part of her breasts that are fairly covered um, because she's wearing a corset. But what we do very clearly see is her face and she looks like she's in the middle of orgasm. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that is incredibly powerful because female pleasure is something that one is like not really a priority typically (laughs) in in conversations about sex. Um, But what's also really interesting about the image is that you don't see a partner or you don't see how it is that that pleasure is achieved, right? Oh. Um, so it could be that she's masturbating. It could be that she's having sex with a partner. That partner could be anyone mm-hmm. um, she 
could like I don't know maybe even not even be having sex but <laughs> um or experiencing some sort of sexual pleasure but given the artist statement we kind of know that she is so um having access to like female body is something that I think a lot or like general mainstream American culture feels the right to like we have a right to see women dressed a certain way we have a right to like women's bodies um and we have a right to like make use of them and dispose. But in this image, we don't have that. Like we don't know how it is that she's achieving pleasure. We don't have necessarily traditional access to her body. We just get to see her in pleasure mm-hmm. and that's it. And which is like what matters, right? Like yeah. she's having a great time. The yeah. end. Like, <laughs> yeah. um, and I don't exactly remember the words that are around and adorning her image, but it's it's like almost affirmations, like you're number one. And like, yeah. like you know what I mean? Like these sort of like self-affirming um, phrases that again, like reaffirm and prioritize your own pleasure and your own like gratification, um, which I think like for Latinx women is really still like a touchy subject, mm-hmm. right? Like I have a lot of friends that, don't really feel comfortable talking about sex or talking about pleasure. Um, And so seeing that, it might seem so simple, but it's just, like, very, again, like, powerful, right, to see it. Mm -hmm. And then coming to the conclusion of your thesis, Mm -hmm. can you share the conclusion that you came across towards Pachucas and Cholas? Yes. So the... It's hard to say that I came to a conclusion um, because like, it, I'm still it's not done. Yeah. Exactly, because yeah. it's still not done. Yeah. Um, but the last chapter is about um, chingonas. And so what I said was, like, I, I call this homework. Like, this is the academic theoretical frame that I'm using to write this work. And that's important and great and good for me. But yeah. <laughs> um, I said, but if I were talking about this with a friend, what I would actually be saying is, like, you know, it's like when you're being chingona. Mm-hmm. Right. When you're being like like a fucker, when you're like, you know, like you're just <laughs> you're, like you're the, the best of the best. Exactly. Right. Um, and that's what it is to be a pachuca. That's what it is to be a cholas, to be a chingona. And um, the conclusions, I guess, that I come to is this like these women have, yes, set out a lineage of basically how to be a bad bitch. Um, and the way that it's getting picked up and translated today is with this idea of chingona, like so many female like latinx creatives female femme um creatives are using the word chingona to describe themselves to describe like their brand (laughs) um but to describe their work right like it's radical it's rebel it's never been done before um and that's exactly what these women were doing like right like they were the og chingonas Mm -hmm. so when i think about like what's the conclusion of this work like it's not even done yet Mm -hmm. because like obviously our generation is here and we're doing it right now so you can't Well, you can write about what's happening in the present, but you can't always have the same, like, perspective, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think what the, like, ultimate conclusion is, like, the way we will heal is by fucking up what it is that we've been told, right? Like, we have been told this is the way to be a woman, this is the way to do this, this is the way to do that. And by taking that script and literally flipping it on its head, doing the opposite is the way that we reach liberation, is the way Mm -hmm. that we reach self like actualization, healing, love, community, whatever it is that you're after, it's just getting exactly what it is that you need by any means is is the way to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Really beautiful. <laughs> Creating so. your own homework. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Girl. <laughs> your schoolwork. Yeah. <laughs> what I love about this episode is we usually uh, interview people that are in the midst of mm-hmm. their uh, career in the midst of like they already like they graduated we don't really talk about much of the work that they do in like the stepping stones to mm-hmm. who they are like going to be yeah. in the future mm-hmm. and what I love is like you have a whole other story yeah that you're going <laughs> on to yeah, <laughs> yeah like the world is, is like, your oyster uh, like this is that like cliche. little stepping stone one <laughs> yeah exactly so uh we kind of hinted on it but are you you are continuing your thesis yes I well Yes. So my thesis is done. I submitted it. I will not be writing a thesis uh, for a while, but I am continuing my project. So um, I'm not writing like that formal piece anymore um, because I don't need to because I'm no longer a student. But Mm -hmm. I am still like an intellectual 
And I'm working on getting this project out to the public and using Scalar, which is like a online book publishing thing. Mm-hmm. So I'm making like an online book, basically. But it'll be a website um, to put this work uh, back in the community, to give it back to the people that made it, essentially. Yeah, beautiful. And there is somewhere that um, people yes. can follow. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, so the website is still being built because okay. I still have to learn how to do it. <laughs> and but you can follow the project um, on Instagram at home underscore work for chingonas, um, and you can. This Instagram is serving basically as like my journal for the project, um, and will be like obviously about the work, but will also be like these are the updates. Um, on where this project is and how it's going because um, we haven't talked about this, but, like, I was trained as an archivist. So, (laughs) um, like, holding on to the little things along the way is very important to me. And so this is a good way to, like, archive Mm -hmm. the process, right? Um, Like, every... Everything is is important, which is not really helpful because everything takes up a lot of storage. But this is, like, a good way to keep track of, like, where the project's been, Mm -hmm. how it, like moved and ebbed and flowed but again it's also a way to like show folks how it works right like um academia is a place you don't always get a window to and it's stuff that you can do right like like who's to say that this podcast is not like of academic value like it's something that you've put intellectual labor in it's something like right you're producing original ideas and having conversations and you're learning through this um but for some reason like it's work that doesn't get the same like pedigree of, I don't know, like academic excellence. Um, so by sort of like putting the process out there, it enables people to do it um, in whatever way you want to, right? Like for some people it's podcasting, for some people it's artwork, for some people it's fashion. Mm-hmm. Um, so sort of saying like everything you're already doing has like an intellectual thought behind it and giving that value is really important to me. Mm-hmm. So if you're interested in that, follow the Instagram. Yes, <laughs> For um, a little bit of homework to put out there to our listeners, what advice would you give to the next generation that's coming up? Wow. Um, What's the advice I would give? I would say trust yourself, which is a thousand percent easier said than done. Yes. (laughs) Um, But listen to yourself. Even if what you, even if what you, how am I going to say this? Sometimes the advice you give yourself is wrong. And that, like, sometimes, right, like, you feel it in your gut, like, I'm going to do this and I'm going to follow my heart. And sometimes your heart leads you to funny, funny places that wasn't your goal. Um, But there's value in that, right? Like, Mm -hmm. life is not linear. It's very, like, static and up and down and and moves in, in very funny ways. And lean into that because that is where, like, life happens, right? Um lean into struggle when you can lean into things that make you feel uncomfortable because you are stronger than you know you are more capable than you know you are definitely smarter than you know and and trust that right like if you want to do something and you're like I'm not really sure you'll figure it out you always have (laughs) right like I tell myself that like exactly like all the time like I'm always like, like something can be stressing me out. And I'm like, well, I made it this far. Like, like, you know what I mean? like, yeah. like I, I usually like some, there's always something to fall back on, even yeah. if it's a thing you don't expect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so trust that like nothing is ever really going to go according to plan and that's okay. Yeah. Um, and if, yeah, just follow what drives you and don't be like upset or afraid when it takes you to a place you didn't think you would want to go. Cause that's the beauty of it. That is beautiful. <laughs> I think that's a good transition yeah. into our next uh, little tidbit, y'all. Uh, this is actually Brenda DeShazer talking, <laughs> <laughs> and this will be my last episode. And I really did connect with what you were just saying of like take the tolls and take the ride where like mm-hmm. it leads mm-hmm. you. And um, I listened to Oprah a lot on her uh, podcast as well. And she says like listen to the whispers and stuff like that. I love this podcast so much and I know it's going to be such a great work in the future as well um but listening to the whispers and taking the path and everything um it is time for me to sign off (laughs) and uh find my other paths um I am I love this podcast because I did want to jump onto it because I wanted to be like that Ellen and that Oprah and um interview like these fun amazing guests and I love hearing stories and I'm glad that I did it 
Um, but I also have so many other ventures that I want to go into. I did leave my retail job because I was just like lost in like this like consumerism that I hated. And then I was like, I'm going to take an easy uh, job or I'm going to do like a job that like, I don't know, is able for me to have the free time to do all these other ventures that I want to do. So now that I've done this venture, I love it. But hearing a whisper, hearing like some other things that I do want to go on to. And um, I feel like that's another learning lesson for everybody else out there. Like it's okay to like quit sometimes. It's okay to like go into certain paths and like explore them. And just if you decide like this isn't for me, like that is okay. Like as long as you realize that and as long as you um, keep on pushing forward to what you really do want to do. Um, I think that was a good learning lesson for me, at least. <laughs> so, uh, really learned a lot. Love you guys. Love you, Brenda. <laughs> and I know you're going to do a great job with this podcast and taking it to its next level with so many other amazing guests coming on um, and the intellectual that you are. But um, yeah, this will be my last one. Y'all. And thank you, Brenda, for starting this with me. <laughs> it, I couldn't have done it really without you. And I can't see myself doing it with anyone else. So there's no up open applications. <laughs> <laughs> Y'all can't take my slot. Y'all can't yeah. replace me. <laughs> no other Brenda. But thank you, Brenda. Thank you for being having these 10 episodes with me. And, you know, con- uh, we'll be hearing us back in two weeks. And we'll have more amazing ga- guests and more amazing stories. And thank you, Annalisa, for yes. sharing your story and sharing the thank story you. of Pachucas <laughs> and Cholas and of Los Angeles. We really needed to hear that and learn that. And you can listen to us in two weeks and also follow us at Ellas the Podcast on Instagram. That is E double L A S the Podcast. Or send us an email. We would love to share your stories if you want to be a guest on the show at ellas the podcast at gmail.com yeah and then follow brenda fernandez <laughs> at bren underscore hi which is b-r-e-n underscore j-a-i and thank you again i really hope for you that you were inspired and that you start to do your own homework and we'll listen to us in two weeks i'm brenda hernandez and i am brenda DeShazer. bye Ellas is co-hosted by Brenda DeShazer and me, Brenda Hernandez. Thanks to our editor and producer, D.F. DeShazer II. And thank you to Shro, who created our theme song. This is Ellas. Cool. Cool. Yes. Yes.